0: Yeah. you.
1: have complained that modern trek specifically discovery but whether that be jj trek this or you know even uh even enterprise or those things are not classic trek that's what they say but sometimes you have to go back before you can boldly go forward which i think is exactly what this episode has done touch of modern trek that feels classic Uh, You even said this before we started, and I have it in my notes, too, that you could throw this back into the original series, and it would feel like, uh, well, I wrote, like, the Nomad episode, or Who Mourns for Adonis, but you mentioned uh, Landrew or the Apple. It's also
0: got some, uh, the Paradise, where Spock has the spores. Oh, yeah, yeah,
1: this side of Paradise, yeah.
0: Simple, simple living people, and, you know, they're really kind of just there to... Like do medical checkups or whatever. And...
1: Memory Alpha mentions these also the Paradise Syndrome, mm-hmm. which we haven't gotten to yet, but we're that coming up we just, on it.
0: Isn't that Spock? And the no, support? that was
1: this side of Paradise. Oh, this uh,
0: too many paradises.
1: Yeah, too many no, This, is, this <laughs> is the one where uh, this is one where an external force has somehow put a human settlement somewhere else. That was kind of the. Com- they also which said did, which
0: uh, happened to this episode that we're watching today.
1: Exactly, that's why they're they're mentioning it. They said they also did this on Voyager in an episode called the Thirty Sevens, and uh, the third one was uh, an episode of Enterprise called North Star. So that was interesting.
0: So there, those are your assignments for this week,
1: <laughs> right? Go watch those. Come back, tell us some more how much you liked them. Well, before we get any further in talking about it, obviously, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Matt. I am one of the brothers who trek about. And uh, coming to us from the east side, the satellite studio in Houston, is my brother Ken. Say hello, Ken. I'm a doctor, not an escalator. <laughs> uh, so uh, just going back, picking up right where we left off here. On Saturday, you would we had a text that just read, OMG. Classic trick. We'll skip over your use of OMG here and uh, ask you what you uh, what you meant by that.
0: Well, I watched it. I felt like this really could have been Kirk, McCoy, Spock. They had the same kind of debate about, do we leave the planet alone? Or do we reveal this fact that we as the audience know that the settlers on the planet are unaware of? We have the the familiar trope in which they're like we're from the northern you know zone oh from the yeah okay yeah we know okay no problem uh how are things going up there you're just dandy so you know it just there were like so many pieces that just felt like oh I, i've seen this before it did not of course feel stale or like oh this again it was instead like oh yeah we're back here we came back And the whole episode was like that because it had so much newness to it as well. So some of the things that they were groping towards in the first and the second season of of the original series, things like why it is that you find humans in Earth-like planets somewhere else. I mean, how many times have we seen a globe that was turned upside down or, like, you know, some way just slightly cockeyed? And we get these remarks like... Well, the uh, atmosphere is uh, exactly Earth-like, Captain, and then you beam down, on it's humans.
1: It's a parallel Earth.
0: It is. You know, we get several. We get. We get a rule. You know about parallel Earths, right? You know about, yeah. and again, we get this here, although it's it's worked through other science fiction authors' names rather than you know we make up a name. Right. So, just, so it just felt like this is what Trek would look like if they had kind of thought through the prime directive in the Federation and we didn't get dilithium circuits or lithium circuits. And yeah, uh, you know, we, we don't even know what, what our group is called. And this, so it was very cool. Classic.
1: Yeah. I think, uh, well, here's one of the things I liked about this episode is, is that um, everything in it, plays towards our season arc, right? Right. You know, you could uh in theory, you could in theory watch this episode without knowing what else happens in the arc, right? You just come in, they're like, "Okay, they're talking about Spock here, I get that." And there's a thing about a red angel, okay. "Oh, look at that. It happens at the end and blah blah blah." You know, you could theoretically watch this as an encapsulated episode, you know. It's kind of like season one or two of smallville or uh you know uh, buffy or x files or you know kind of a monster of the week those kinds of things where we have a mission we're gonna do this mission but what happens in this mission is also playing into the grand scheme of things right? right so they're sent here basically by the red angel what the red angel made them do on the last planet saves this planet you know it's all very convenient how it ends up working out
0: We also got some fun spore drive stuff. So we were talking about how in the previous episode, we'd had this kind of beginning that was a kind of combination of recapping episode one and foreshadowing season two or recapping uh, season one and foreshadowing season two. Yeah. And so they saved a little bit of stuff. This is the first time we used a spore drive and uh, we got to see how that played out here for the first time lots of fun with pike
1: for well yeah that was true that was a good that was good i love uh i wrote down one of those lines because it was so good but uh, uh i have to find it so uh saru asks pike just before they launch if there are any questions you know and pike says if you're telling me that this ship can skip across the universe on a highway made of mushrooms I'm kind of going to have to go on faith. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: I love that. Yeah. That whole scene with him uh, and the spore drive and everything was really fun. They, they, they got a good kick out of that one. You know, and it's interesting too. We saw in the first one, we'll get back to the spore drive, but side note, it's been interesting how in the first one, we were finding a little more humor in this season than we saw in the first one. Obviously the first season was a little bit darker, a little more like stuff going on, but, uh, You know, here we find there's a lot more humor. I was also wondering how much uh, Jay Frakes paid into all this, right? The fabulous director of this episode. Um, There's a little uh, video about, you know, him directing and everybody talking, and one of the things they just talk about is how funny he is. Uh, He even jokingly calls himself Two Takes Frakes (laughs) because they get everything done so quickly, you know? (laughs) So, yeah, I wondered how much of that just because of what a guy he is. And, of course, what happened on the original show. You know, we know that story about Patrick Stewart and the rest of the cast not getting along at first because they all thought they he thought that they were all playing around too much. So but then he got seduced by the dark side. (laughs) (laughs) So that was fun. But, you know, back to the spore drive again, it's interesting how the spore, even the spore drive stuff is playing into the overall arc of this. Right. Again, you know, we've got, uh, Tilly is trying that, you know, she can use the asteroid they found in the last episode to try and find a new conduit that Stamets can. And so it doesn't have to be Stamets in the spore drive. Um, but it's also used at the very end to, you know, save the planet and, it's really cool. the The story structure of this show is really well done, and I'll get into that a little bit more later. But uh, that's really great. But we did find that Stamets is uh, afraid. I think to go back into is he afraid? I don't know. He's he's afraid to go back in because he's afraid he's going to see Hugh. And if he sees Hugh, he literally you know dot dot dots it when he says I don't know what I you know what'll happen right. or you know right,
0: yeah which makes sense yeah. You got to worry about Stamets know? a
1: little bit, right? Right. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, you can you can imagine the same thing about like uh, Spock going into the Nexus. You know, he's like, well, you know, that's that's where Kirk is. Well, what will Spock do? Will Spock stay there? Will he bring him back? Will he, you know, will they say, well, this is where we're going to explore from now on? So, yeah, you can imagine the exact same kind of problem. I mean, Kirk wanted to go into the new radiation chamber.
1: Right. Right. Safe
0: spot. At the end of, yeah. But it, it took, you know, both McCoy and Scotty holding him back, going, no, you'll die. It's re- totally radioactive.
1: You'll and flood the whole compartment.
0: His, yeah. So there is a certain amount at which you're like, "Why we, we should not trust him. On the other hand, like, that's got to be a messed up experience. Right. right. Yeah. That's not like, well, you know, we're, we're going to drive back to Missouri, Matt. Are you okay driving for 12 hours? You're like, man, eh, you know, give me some coffee. I guess I'll be okay. You know, this is this is a messed up situation.
1: Right. So I'd say probably as the theme of this episode, we're discussing faith, right? I mean, right. Uh, it seems to be one of the major things that we talk about. And it's interesting. So we get that first scene with Burnham and Pike, where Pike basically says he, was, he grew up with a, a father who... You know, basically taught uh,
0: comparative religions. And, comparative
1: religions, thank you. And so, but, but but he
0: also was like a scientist, and so
1: yeah, it was a very confusing household. He basically said growing up in.
0: <laughs>
1: but you know, it's interesting as that. So first of all, it's interesting how he uses that information with the people on the planet. You know, he talks about, uh, he's real quick to notice their version of the Bible. It's all these right. different things pieced together. Uh, I thought it was funny. He uses the word fellowship. You right, know?
0: yeah. So, uh, you know, since we are preacher's kids ourselves and we're brought up, you know, as mainline yep. mainland Protestants, I saw lots of things where he would just go, where basically it's what I would have done if I were Christopher Pike, right? Yeah. You throw in some of the vocabulary, you... you when someone says, peace be with you, you immediately follow it up with it an, and also with you. Right. And they're going to go, yeah, he's totally one of us. He's from the Northern territories. you know, nice to see you. <laughs> right, exactly. Why didn't you bring any herring?
1: <laughs> well, it's so funny, too. I was just thinking this happened recently, and I don't know if it was because we were back home or something. But it's interesting how uh, the word fellowship has that, like, religious connotation to it. You know what I mean? realistically it could be anything but it just seems like we've put our own you know christian belief or christian you know thing on that word you know he even uses it too when they've been knocked out by the scientist guy on the planet and the first thing he says when he comes back is is hey whatever happened to thou shalt not steal huh you know what i mean it's funny how he's using all of this stuff so it's interesting because well, all right, so let's discuss this first. So we, we know Roddenberry a lot does not use religion at all. That's It's a right. thing that they're, you know, they use very, so we look at like who mourns for Adonis, right? When he talks about, you know, oh, obviously these aren't gods, they're just aliens. You know, we get the whole Arthur C. Clarke thing in this one that discusses that. But in general, we don't have a lot of discussion of who God may be or what what else in we fact. can see
0: there's there's basically no character until Chakotay who gets the Native American exemption,
1: uh-huh.
0: who is a human and has any kind of religion.
1: Yeah. Up
0: until now, religion was for aliens, Vulcans, Klingons, Bajorans, the planet of the week, right. but never for humans.
1: Uh, so so it's fun, and then in this in this so far from what we've seen, it's. We have a—I mean, again, we can go back to the Arthur C. Clarke thing of, obviously, this could just be a higher-skilled alien who's come down. But it's interesting that they use the angel, right, which, of course, already has its own Christian thing behind it. And then we have this idea of—because it, it's a beneficial, right? He's a benefactor right. to these people that he saved. He's right now leading the, the discovery— on all these different missions, they you know he saved the crew that was stuck on the asteroid. They got the asteroid, and then next up, we not only find that you know they're using the asteroid to save the people on the next planet, but then we also have this whole side story of Tilly, right, who's using the asteroid to save Stamets and you know find a new way to use the spore drive. But she's being talked to by, and I instantly called that. Not in the very first time we see her, but the next time we see her, because she just kind of shows up out of nowhere. We don't hear a door open when she shows up. I was like, no, this is some kind of thing. And it's basically walking her through all the things Tilly would have figured out anyway, but helping her a little bit quicker get to the idea of we can use the asteroid to save that stuff. So we have that interesting character, too, who even says something when you watch it the next time. She even says, like, it's interesting being in your brain or it's fun being in your brain or, Mm -hmm. you know, we need you, Tilly, is actually what she says as well. So there is something else at work here. Alien, God, we don't know. Superior intelligence
0: of some kind, right.
1: Yeah. So I, I think that's really fun to deal with that idea it's it's the way i like to explore that idea is it scientific is it blah blah and so what's even more fun is because we were dealing with in the last episode when burnham sees the angel we're with her we don't know whether or not she's hallucinating whether or not she's really seeing it and then he beams down right where the angel sings. so you're like is this part of the beaming process and she just gets it concluded in her head you don't even know that was like so that was fun to then bring that into this episode They, we have this church, they're believing in the red angel. Burnham tells, tells uh, uh, Pike about the red angel. And then in just the like proof that we all needed, we see it in the head cam, right? So now we know, okay, this angel is some sort of, you know, thing that can be picked up and can be seen by not only people, you know, but also a impartial camera. Yeah. Yeah. Technology. So I thought that was fun. When we got to the end of that and we saw the red angel in the camera, I was like, oh, that was cool. I love that. So when this episode opens up, uh, we hear Spock again. but There is no Spock in this episode. So again, it's kind of just a tease. It's part of the arc. And we do find out the other important piece of information that he's in a psychiatric facility. You know, why is he there? What's happening?
0: Yeah, so I think this is kind of a... Uh... Comes out of left field, kind of a surprise. This is not what you would have predicted. I mean, I, th- I think watching the trailers, we think now that they're just, dis- you know, discoveries using the Spore driver again and we're bouncing around the guy, we're going to find him like, you know, so far away from where you'd, from Federation Space. You're like, how did you get here? I mean, you'd have to be like, well, a uh, wormhole, you know, spit me out, blah, blah. Right. You know, weird. Instead, no, he's like down the street from like the Federation capital at
1: Starbucks. Asylum. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. I had a thought about this. Um, it like it's the signals, right? He says in the last episode that he's having nightmare, as Amanda calls them, and you know about the signals, and so maybe that's what's driving him crazy. I last week, three nights in a row, had nightmares. Had nightmares, you know, one night each, and. So, you know, you start to go a little bit like, I don't want to go back to sleep. I'm going to have another like crazy nightmare. I'm going to, you know, I had I had one of my nightmares was like literally took place in the back Black Lodge, you know, with the little man from another place and Agent Cooper. I'm like, I, I don't want to go back to bed and get that again. You know what I mean? So can you, you imagine every. What's that?
0: that the gu- Did you find out that the gum you like will come back into
1: style? If only it was that cool. No, it wasn't. <laughs> You know, as a side note, Jamie was like, everyone in your dreams is supposed to be like some aspect of you or something. I'm like, well, what's the little hand from the other place? What aspect of that in, of me is that? What aspect of me is Agent Cooper? And is it the good Cooper? Is it the bad Cooper? What am I supposed to get from this? But back to what I was saying, you know, like I can't imagine every night, you know, you get the signals beeping in your head or whatever's happening to him. You can imagine that even for a Vulcan, especially a half Vulcan, that that's not, it's not cool. It's not making him happy for sure. I did have also have a dream last week where my bar just, like, wouldn't stop filling up. Every time I was getting somebody else's drink, somebody else was ordering a drink, and it was just, like, layer after layer of people. I was like, come on, stop it. I'm trying to sleep here. Nothing worse than dreaming about an eight-hour shift and then going in and having to work an eight-hour shift. I was exhausted. <laughs> Spock didn't want his family to know, right? Because that's a general right. order whenever anyone goes into the asylum. So that sounds like a stoic Vulcan thing, if I've ever heard one. Pike asks Burnham to try and get in touch with Spock, but Burnham says uh, he won't accept the olive branch coming from me. So this is even teasing more that whatever she did was, like, seriously awful to him. Like, she, he's not even talking to her. He won't talk about her for the next 50 years. Like...
0: Yeah, and you know she has someone who has like done crazy stuff. I believe she knocked out her previous captain and like started a mutiny in order to start a war with the Klingons, right? right? So the stakes we're dealing with, it have to be like pretty serious. It can't be like, yeah, I used to poke him in the back seat when we were driving to, you know, McDonald's. Montana. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> We also in the trailer for the next episode we see Amanda's coming in, so I was speculating that perhaps she's the one that they bring in to talk to Spock. You know, they're like, well, yeah. somebody will, who uh, who among everybody in the galaxy would be able to get the you know get Spock to be like, okay, you can come see me. It would clearly be Amanda.
0: Well, it's it's either gonna be Pike or you know Amanda or you know obviously but a burden doesn't want to do it. They've obviously got something that needs to be resolved in more than a 15 minute conversation. And for Canon reasons, it can't be Sarek.
1: Yes, man. All my notes got messed up. Maybe I'll re-edit this later to add this piece of information in. So when we see the camera at the end, we know that this is some kind of corporeal, I guess. Yeah, that'd be right. Corporeal entity. Uh, that did come in to save these people. The questions, of course, we have are now are who are these people? Why are they saving these people? And how are they, you know, transporting people from an alpha quadrant to the beta quadrant? Uh, We have none of these answers, and right now it's all on faith, which is interesting because, you know, that's also another thing Burnham talks about, or, sorry, Pike talks about, right? Uh, There's more to the stars ratio than... Are thought about in our dreams, something close to that. I should know that one better, but I, for some reason can't right now pull it out. But, uh, you know, we talk about that and she says, you know, do not ascribe meeting when there just seems to be random. And, uh, obviously at the end of that episode with the angel, there changes that whole idea.
0: Yes. You've got like, you know, a sense that Pike has a deep wisdom, right? So if we think back about our original cast You know, I think the normal working was that McCoy was the wise one, Spock was the smart one, and Kirk was the strong one. And over time, I think Spock brought a certain amount of wisdom, but one of the tropes of the show is to undermine Spock a little bit, because part of Spock's purpose was to show that there's a role for being human, right, humanity. And... Spock's rejection of humanity and his rejection of emotion was a a problem, you know, for the theme of the show, right? So Spock couldn't be too good. He had to get things wrong from time to time. And I think there was a natural balance uh, between Spock and McCoy, in which McCoy was the wiser and Spock was the smarter. And what you have here for Pike is, of course, he's not balanced by his own crew he's working with um, Burnham who in this episode especially feels very Spock like she's in the Spock yep. role of being very logical and yep. rational and science oriented um, I think Saru brings a certain amount of the McCoy to the picture but I really feel like uh, Pike has both a, a kind of a strength of Kirk and a wisdom of McCoy
1: mm-hmm I definitely feel that's true you know it's funny when you say that about saru being the more mccoy his handling of tilly i think is very much like that you know what yeah. i mean when he goes in talks to her about well you know sometimes you got to take care of yourself before you can take care of somebody else that sounds very mccoy like and you know even when he comes back to apologize at the end and says you know well i guess you should you, know, <laughs> uh, you should disregard my orders more often if you're going to keep saving people's lives let's talk about the humans that are transported to this planet for a minute the red angel brought them there to avoid the war as we can tell i wonder how many people first came over did they mention my point my thought is is that they couldn't have all been in that church right like the church just had to be like so it was the surrounding area maybe it was the all all those houses that we see she brought them all or something i don't know
0: well and we know that there's Multiple settlements is like what 11 settlements and the population's reasonably sized now theoretically there it's been like 200 years or something like that yeah it's, it's been a, a chunk of time so it's certainly possible that you bring a bunch of unrelated humans right so that it's not like you have four families and yeah. you know in like two three generations everyone's cousins yeah you bring a bunch of largely unrelated individuals, and you know the, theoretically you could get a fairly large population pretty quickly if the environment is at all decent. You know, yeah. not a lot of predators, everyone doesn't get sick. You know, so if the Red Angel picked a spot and kind of you know prepped it, then uh, you could get a large population, and that would mean we don't this these buildings all could have been constructed based on memories, based on records, based on what people thought home looked like. Yeah. You know, in the 50s, people were trying to reconstruct the world they imagine we would have had had there been no Great Depression and no World War. Right. And so there's this huge nostalgia piece of it, which is why it's weird and it only lasts like a decade before it gets rebelled against. And everyone kind of abandons it, right? People aren't clinging to the 50s. And then we have another nostalgia for the 50s when we come on the other side of that rejection of the 50s, right? Right. And so, in a sense, they're doing the same thing. that They have this nostalgia for what it was like before the eugenics wars. And having a small population, it's not like they're going to have a bunch of new innovations.
1: You know, mm-hmm. they're
0: not going to have a, you know, a, a great architect who comes up with a whole new design scheme. And they had a new... Uh, you know, musician who changed their whole music and they had a new, you know, portraitist or who changed, you know, it's not like you're going to go there and be like, wow, everything's really different here.
1: Yeah. Is that that all you got? Yeah, that was my thought, yeah. Okay, sorry. It just stopped all of a sudden. I was like, uh. So I thought it was interesting. So 200 years have passed. And so then we have this, you know, giant asteroid nuclear fallout thing that's gonna happen here i was thinking at first like couldn't the red angel have like seen this when he brought them there and then i was like well depending on like how this where this red angel comes from could be you know in a fourth dimension where time doesn't make any so it's like as soon as i get here i'm like oh that's gonna happen well we'll just bring in the enterprise here we go oh i got this other thing happening too okay great we'll just make just make this all one big run who knows who knows Uh, I also wrote this, that from a story structure standpoint, this is a really interesting episode. Um, Not only just the content, but the actual structure of it itself. Uh, It was 10 minutes before we got to the opening credits in this first episode, which is funny because this is just, if we go back to the classic episode scenario, right? This is exactly how our our, our episodes go. We get the opening teaser that brings them to the planet or brings them to the problem, whatever it is. And then we get the opening credits. So it's like, oh, the problem, oh, from here now, we're launching into what the rest of the show is. So we find the planet. There's a weird thing to investigate. We get our briefing room scene, right? Which is a legit ready room. It's the new ready room that he, you know, changed from Lorca's standing thing. Right. Um, we deal with our problem and the theme. We got the prime directive. That's a big issue, which we'll talk about that in a minute too uh burnham disagrees with the with it so now we have our internal conflict as well as our external conflict that's going on all of this happens we get our we get our final uh we get our final big thing where pike is you know hurt and has to be beamed up back to the planet and you know who everybody's safe though we saved the planet. Okay, then we get to our denouement, which, you know, leads back to the question on Faith and the Red Angel and leads us into our next episode. So it's really interesting because a lot of that feels Classic Trek. Oh, yeah. And again, who better to lead this episode of Classic Trek <laughs> through its bases but the man who has been on more Star Trek sets than anybody else, Mr. J. Frakes himself. So it was really great. So, But it really, so that's, I think, part of, what feels like classic Trek in this episode is is Mm -hmm. not only are we getting a story that is classic Trek, but the structure of it also feels very classic Trek.
0: Right. And of course, you know, as we've seen in uh, conventions and, you know, public appearances, Roddenberry, you know, spent a, a certain amount of time with, with Franks as the young guy and like, you know, told him stuff and kind of inspired him with some, you know, vision of the future kind of stuff. I, mean, I, I think it's because he's the Kirk in Next Generation, and that's kind of Rodbury's favorite character. Yeah. So it, it, it kind of makes sense that, like, if you were going to, let's we're going to do a classic Trek episode, right, one that, like, just totally feels like, you know, the most er-Trek Then Uh who do you want to direct it but Jonathan Frakes, who, you know, deeply understands Star Trek and, you know, has, in a sense, when he's carrying the torch, he's carrying it, like, only through one, it's like, yeah, Roddenberry handed it to me, right, Uh kind of a thing in terms of, like, I spoke to the great man. It's not like, well, you know, this guy told me that, and that guy told him that, and that guy told him that, and Roddenberry told him that. You know, because some of the people making Trek, obviously, Roddenberry's son is involved in, but I, I mean, I really don't know to what extent he's hands-on and involved or whether right. he's just like, well, I own the property, so...
1: <laughs> Putting my blessing on it, that's all I'm doing.
0: Yeah, and, and so you better, like, you know, give me some credits, right? Just part of what I want in terms of payment. It is an executive producer thing. And um, on the other hand, he may be, you know, one of these other guys who's carrying the torch because he got it right from Dad. Yeah. And he knows the spirit, and he's, you know, been involved. So I I don't know how that part of it, you know, plays out.
1: Yeah. Well, I know for a long time, too, he rejected Trek. You know, he was like, ah, it's this thing my dad did, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until after his dad died And then he started like really like going through the notes and started looking at things. And then, you know, he ended up doing either writing a book or doing a documentary or both. I don't remember. But uh, but it wasn't until he finally like did all that. And he put it together in his brain that he was finally like, that was silly of me as a kid, as a kid. What did I know? It's also interesting, too, I thought how perfectly we talked a little bit about this already, but how perfectly we got to. You know, how they use the, how perfectly they use the asteroid, right? So we got this from right. the last episode. And then this asteroid, you can almost see him just talking about it, breaking it down in the writer's room, right? Well, we got this asteroid, right? We, we're we going to use that at the end as the gravity, but we can also use it because she needs to get a piece out of it for, you know, the next episode when we have to use the store drive. So we can right. use that as, as to show her with the, You know, uh, uh, thinking about Stamets and, you know, that she's really doing this for him. And then she's going to get hurt, which is going to lead us to the next scene where she's in sickbay and she's talking to the Red Angel person. Uh, May or whatever her name was. Yeah. So I thought, you know, you can I could almost just see it being broken down like that. It was crazy.
0: Right. Yeah. And in a sense, you, you get a real economy of storytelling because. We're telling all these different stories, but they keep looping back in on themselves. They keep connecting. So it's not like, well, now we have to introduce 85 characters and like, you know, 87 different little objects have to be involved. Instead, we're really keeping it to like three different through lines Uh that intertwine and, and move around. And so it's very cool.
1: Yeah, it's super great. I was thinking about that too, because there are there are so many storylines that are now in the air, which again is great. The arciness of it, right? That we've been talking about while we wish the original series was. We have these moments where you know Stamets can worry, uh, you know, about dealing with going into the Spore Drive, and we can worry for Stamets about what will happen next time. You know, we also have uh, you know the stuff with Tilly and her on her on her command track, and then this story with this. Crazy Red Angel May person. And then, you know, we also have Burnham dealing with Spock. And we have Pike taking over the ship. It's just amazing layer after layer after layer. And all these things get addressed in this episode, you know, perfectly. You never feel like anything's, like, forced in.
0: So one of the things that... So, like, we have rewatched 24, for example, right? Okay. And you do a rewatch of 24... And you're like, wow, when I first watched the first couple seasons, I thought, oh, this is so fast paced.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And then you watch it again, you know, after having watched it till its conclusion. And you're like, you know, those first seasons were actually kind of slow. Now that that I'm capable of watching a season five,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: season one seems slow. But at the time, yeah.
1: That's what I was going to say. I saw season five and then it was like, oh, let's go back and watch season one. And you're like, wait, the whole thing takes place over season, you know, because now they like split up after hour 12. You're like, well, now we're off into this new part of this adventure. But in that one, you're like, wow, she's still kidnapped at hour 12, huh? Like, you know, you're just like, this is so painfully slow. Oh, my God.
0: Of course, at the time, he was like, I can't believe TV can be this fast.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
0: So we have the same situation in that a show like Lost comes along and it's got a bunch of things going on, but a lot of them never go anywhere and, you know, way too many characters and a lot of stuff just doesn't make sense. And now it feels like writers have figured out how to write those kinds of stories without it going crazy. And Producers probably have a sense of like, going, no, no, we're not introducing another character for that. You're out a way to introduce to you know utilize an existing character. Um, you know that's interesting, but let's hold that because maybe there's a way to utilize something we've already got, or if we're gonna create a new thing like a meteor, we're gonna make it pay off because we're gonna keep using it. Right, we're not gonna use it one time and then we're gonna have a coffee cup. And then there's going to be, you know, trilithium. And then there's going to be, you know, uh, you know, because that's one of the things that makes people think that uh, Star Trek and, you know, you've got, um, you know, just like we're going to we're going to just reach into our bag of magic tricks and find the substance we need. And on the one hand, I think that's what would happen if you had the, the knowledge of the physics of the universe at your fingertips On the other hand, it can feel like it's just, you know, we just keep, just, you know, dux ex machina. Whatever you need there, we're going to come up with it, whatever. Uh As opposed to here, we've got this, you know, we're we're reusing ideas. Yeah. I love it.
1: Um, So let's talk a little bit about the Prime Directive here and how it works in this episode, because... I don't know. I'm kind of with Burnham on this one, right? I mean, these are people who are from Earth. They were taken out of here, you know, not against their will, but, you know, they were taken from Earth, you know, not of their choice. So for me, it just feels like, well, let's get these people back to Earth. You know, in fact, that's what I thought was going to happen. As soon as we heard about the meteor, I'm like, oh, they're going to get like as many of these 11,000 people back on the uh, ship as they can. Uh, which isn't what happens, because we have Pike saying, no, no, they're, pre-war- they're pre-warp Earth. And you're like, yeah, but they're still from Earth. Like, I don't know. What's your feeling on this?
0: <clears throat> well, part of it is 11,000 is too many, right? This, this True, they're be probably a... not
1: all going to fit on the Discovery.
0: Yeah, I mean, we have these kind of planetary rescue situations where with uh, the Enterprise D, and I think it's like 5,000 is basically what they could have put on. Mm-hmm on that, and so we're already well past you know, a pre-Constitution class, you know, discovery science vessel, probably way, way filled with lab stuff and technical apparatus that, an evacuation just not plausible. So in one sense, Pike has to, as the command officer, who's going to face the trolley problem, because that's what command officers do.
1: Uh-huh.
0: He's got to cross that office list to go, okay, well, you know, rescue is out we have to you know keep this planet habitable now we have to look for other alternatives and that becomes way easier if you just don't like oh by the way i'm gonna reveal this thing to you earth is cool and uh, everybody's happy because yeah. then everyone wants to go back and you're like but we can only bring like 50 <laughs> yeah. So who's going the rest of you by the way dead
1: I mean, everybody else seemed, like, almost content there, so it was probably fine, you know what uh, I mean? yeah, yeah. I guess opening up the idea of, like, well, you could leave might, you know, freak a lot of people out.
0: Right, especially because we can't do this. This isn't the ship that's going to carry you all home.
1: Yeah. Although there's no other ship that can get there either.
0: Right, yeah. I mean, so, and with 11,000, you're kind of like, you know, let's let this colony develop and hope that it doesn't become the Romulan Empire, right? <laughs>
1: Right? Memory Alpha also tells us that this is actually the first time we've actually been in the Beta Quadrant. It's been talked about, it's been discussed, but that we've never actually made it into. We've gone to the Delta, obviously, in Voyager. And I mean, that's only
0: partially true. The So, on most maps, the Romulans and the Klingons are in the Beta Quadrant.
1: Oh, okay. The,
0: the Vulcans, the Andorians, the Tellarites, they're all in the Beta Quadrant. That the, like the Greenwich Mean Time that goes right through Greenwich and Paris, Mm -hmm. and like, basically London, the dividing line between the Alpha and the Beta Quadrant goes through Earth. And so Earth is, or the solar system is simultaneously in the Alpha and the Beta Quadrant. Oh, really? Because it's, yeah, it's divided in half, right? So basically, you look this way, and it's all Beta Quadrant. And you look this way; it's all Alpha Quadrant. So the Alpha Quadrant is the Cardassians and the Ferengi and, you know, some of the some of the later species, the Bajorans, the Trill, um, the the frozen ice people who talk in machine, who had the super powerful weapon at the end okay. of the uh, Deep Space Nine. They were cold. I know I have a, I have a beautiful set of theirs in... Uh, I
1: didn't get to the end of Deep Space Nine. Not because I didn't want to, but just in at my time in the life, it wasn't...
0: Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, so like the Rymals and the Klingons are the Beta Quadrant. So in a sense, that feels like home, because that's where Trek has been the longest, right?
1: Well, then what the hell is Memory Alpha talking about? I'm looking into... I don't Alpha. know.
0: But that's that's how the maps typically look. Is huh. you, you got this line that goes straight through the solar system, and that okay. the far away quadrants are the the Gamma and the Delta, and so Voyager did Delta, and Deep Space Nine did Gamma quadrant, which is why there are no Borg in DS Nine. Wrong quadrant.
1: This is what uh, Memory Alpha says: is this. Episode marks one of the rare confirmed mentions and appearances of the Beta Quadrant, with Terralisium being located there, far away from Federation territory. So that would be my bad, because I first said that it was the first time, and although it's clearly not the first time, it is one of the rare appearances.
0: So, when I look at Beta Quadrant on Memory Alpha...
1: That's right, I just went it next. It
0: says the Beta... Right, The Beta Quadrant was the common designation for a quarter of the Milky Way. It's adjacent to the Alpha and Delta. Yep. Um, part of the Klingon Empire, including Quonos, was located in the Beta Quadrant. The Romulan Star Empire claimed territory in the Beta Quadrant. In
1: 2293, Starship USS Excelsior, commanded by Hakeru Sulu, completed a three-year exploratory voyage in the Beta Quadrant, which included cataloging gaseous anomalies first we find that out in Star Trek 6.
0: Yeah. It was in the belt uh I guess the beta quadrant that
1: uh Riker was put into a Hollow program. Yeah. Yeah, I just read that one too. Well, there you go. Take that information for what you can, put it all together because that's about all we get. There are, to be fair, in the uh in Memory Alpha, there are very few references to the beta quadrant, so
0: And I think part of it is because it's home.
1: Yeah, could be. Also, interesting note, uh, there was uh, one of the commercials I got while watching the episode was about Star Trek Online with the uh, Commander Killy episodes talking about, so that that was really fun. And speaking of Tilly, two things worth mentioning about her in this episode. One, it was funny because when she comes running onto the bridge, we talked before, I should have started it this way. We talked before about how, like, the crew of the Enterprise gives information to the rest of the crew that they already know, but they're really telling us about it. Right. So she does that right here by telling them about the gravity of the asteroid, right? But she also, like, tags it by saying, uh, you already know this, and then moves on with the rest of her explanation. So I thought that was funny that they... Uh, they did what we've been talking about, but then we also live, tagged they it. They lampshaded it, yeah. Yep, exactly. Uh, secondly, I was trying to... I. I I don't, I don't love her use of saying that the uh, Discovery was going to be doing a donut in space. Right. I'm like, seriously, donuts, come on. Isn't that just a car thing? Are we still, are they doing s- donuts and speeders still black back on Earth? I can't believe that that's still a thing 200 years into the uh, future.
0: Well, I think, you know, so part of it is what Tilly does a lot is describes complex space phenomenon in terms of, like, uh, bottom line, you know, straightforward, concrete, uh, stuff, which is endearing. I think you also got Burnham doing that when she was, uh, in the, in the previous episode. When she bottom lined the, uh, the thing they were working on and so you had the, the the science officer who has to die because he's so irritating?
1: Yeah. Are they some kind of signal? That's what we're calling it. But I'll leave the
0: rest of my science officer
1: or your ball, Connolly. The signals don't seem to be moons, stars, or any other type of planet. So the truth is we can't detect anything about them or engage with them in any way. Every time we tried to scan, the computer went haywire. Like a compass at the North Pole. Well put. What can we think of that, Connolly? Huh? Think of all the syllables that gave their lives.
0: The metaphor seemed a bit simplistic. I believe it's a simile. And Pike is like, we wasted so so many words had to die, you know, trying to explain this thing. And we could have just gone with this. And he's like, I think it's actually too simplistic.
1: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That
0: whole exchange. Yeah.
1: Yep. Oh, I can't remember what it was either. Well, anyway, moving on. Back to my notes. So I mentioned this in season one, and then we never talked about it ever again. So I'm going to talk about it now. It was the robot that exists? Is it a robot? We don't know. Uh, the robot that exists on the crew or on the on the on the bridge. Uh, in this episode, she has a pretty predominant part because when uh, the one character goes down with Burnham and Pike, she takes over navigation or no ops she's probably an right. ops. so i'm like okay i gotta find out what we know about this character so to memory alpha i go and we find out her that her name is arium which uh saru actually calls her in the show this week there are a, a number of divergent background statements according to the website uh, on star trek.com described arium as being a synthetic human hybrid while ted sullivan tweeted that she was an alien but then there was an After Trek episode where they described her species as an augmented alien. And then there was another After Trek episode where they called her an augmented human. So we don't really know much about Arium is pretty much what I'm getting at there. Uh, <laughs> however, critic Darren Frenick says of Arium that uh, she is the greatest background character in tre- Trek history since the glory days of Deep Space Nine bar. So there you go. Lieutenant Commander Arium is one of the highest ranking bridge officers and as such was occasionally left in command when Commander Lorca and Commander Saru were away from the bridge. After Lorca's death, she held the bridge while Saru met Burnham in the transporter room following the Discovery's return to the Mirror universe. That's all I got of Miriam. Like I said, there's not a lot on her, so she's a character that they could maybe someday explore or maybe not. We'll just have to see how it goes. Uh, A couple of other interesting factoids. Christopher Pike says that the USS Discovery would need about 150 years to cross the distance over 51,000 light years at maximum warp. This implies a much slower maximum warp than the 24th century Starfleet, when the USS Voyager says that they'd be able to cross 70,000 light years in about 75 years.
0: Yeah, so one of the things that happens, and this is just between next generation and the original series, is that you'll notice that the safe high warp that they're using where they don't where is warp four. When they're at warp four going someplace, you don't have Scotty calling up to the bridge going, She cannot take it much longer, Captain Right. Whereas in next generation, that seems to be warp six. And because it's a logarithmic scale, warp six is like a hundred times faster than Warp uh-huh. four. Or maybe not a hundred, but it's it's more than 50% faster
1: yeah well we've talked about that too on the year about the original series too where you know they seem to never go past like warp warp nine is like crazy you would never do it you know that kind of thing so right uh, and then plus what those scales mean Uh, Well, that's it. That's all I got in the notes. It was a surprisingly short episode, actually. Uh, Not just the one we're doing, but the episode itself. It was only 45 minutes, so that's crazy. So, short episode there, short episode here, I say. Uh, (laughs) Anything else we got to talk about? Anything uh, we didn't get to that you want to talk about?
0: No? I felt like that was it.
1: I think we did it good. All right. Well, as always, my name is Matt. Coming to you from austin it's gonna be great uh don't forget to check us out we got the website going uh we're throwing up these episodes on youtube so if you want to watch us you can watch us there uh we're also on soundcloud and stitcher right now apple podcasts so many places you can find us so keep looking for us and keep listening and we'd appreciate it as always my name is matt so i'm saying goodbye and from uh, houston is my brother ken say goodbye ken live long and prosper there we go and we will see you all next week for more discovery